How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone an opportunity to make sure that you're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and uh, ready to uh, focus and let God the Holy Spirit uh, teach us and impress upon our minds the application that we need in our own lives. So uh, after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here this evening to study your word and to be uh, challenged by the things that we study, that uh, as we learn that God the Holy Spirit will take these principles and drive them home in our own thinking, and that as we continue to study your word uh, bit by bit, a little here, a little there, that as that accumulates, the drips here and there come together to make rivulets and rivers and floods, and before long our our minds are filled with your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us as we uh, take in your word, study your word, and that we might have clear understanding of how to apply it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. It's been three weeks since we were here on Thursday night looking at Romans because of the uh, uh, pastor's conference right? And then, wasn't there something in between? seemed like my last set of notes was on the first, so that means there were two intervening things. And um, one was I did a report from APAC uh, after I got back from APAC, so that's why we haven't been in Romans for a while. And I don't know about you, but when I miss a couple of weeks and come back to the topic, I have to go back and listen to whatever it was I taught the last time just so I can try to remember uh, where I was and what I was thinking and try to recover that that uh, path in our mind. And this is such an important section that I want to go back and just sort of hit the high points as we make our progression. Now, in Romans 5, uh, Paul introduces a, a group of what's commonly referred to as virtues, which is why last time I talked a little bit, the title had something to do with virtues, and this time it has to do with the virtuous Christian life. Romans 5, 3 through 5, and 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8. In that passage, which is our, our book, topic we're studying, Paul says in verse 2, through whom also, that is to Christ, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope, that is confidence of the glory of God. Hope in the Bible always speaks of a confidence, a certainty, not a wishful optimism, but a certain absolute, always looking forward to the fulfillment of a promise, a promise made by God. Therefore, it is guaranteed in terms of its uh, certain future fulfillment. Uh, in which we stand, rejoice in confidence of the glory of God. Now, I want you to pay attention to this phrase because we're going to see something similar to it in Second Peter, where in Second Peter one three, 
we're uh, reminded that we're called through the knowledge of, or we grow through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And that term glory is a term that is often used of the uh, as a as a as a synonym for the character of God, so we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is His character, because that's what guarantees and stand behind all of His promises, which focus on that future future destiny. Verse three, Paul says, not only that, but we also rejoice. Or we also he uses the word boast, or it's the same word used in verse two. Rejoicing in hope. So most English translations change to a different English word, but it should stay the same so we understand that there's a consistency here. We also rejoice uh, in adversities because we know that adversity produces endurance and endurance character and character confidence or, or that character produces hope. Now hope which is confidence in God does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the focal point here is on hope in terms of the spiritual life and the fact that this is grounded in the certainty of our salvation. From God's perspective, there is a an integral connection between our past, present, and future salvation. We talk about this a lot, that, that we're saved at the cross one decision, trust in Christ as Savior, that is our um, justification by faith, phase one salvation. And so we refer to that as our justification salvation. Then we have ongoing spiritual growth salvation or phase two, and then future glorification salvation, which is phase three. But in the mind of God, there's an integral connection between these these three, which is where what Paul's explaining here is how we move from what the grace in which we stand, which is our position as as saved new creatures in Christ, to the growth process to its ultimate culmination in the plan of God. So I started looking at the doctrine of hope, looked at it first in terms of how Paul taught it in Romans and then in the rest of the Pauline epistles, and then outside of the Pauline epistles. And this did indeed take us to a passage where we were spending some time, uh, last lesson and this lesson in First, uh, first Peter 1, uh, excuse me, First Peter 1, and then where we are today is in Second Peter, uh, Second Peter 1. That hope is related to that. It's a living hope according to First Peter 1, 3, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's not a wishful optimism. It's not a dead hope. It's not hope and hope. It's not just hope for hope's sake because the alternative is just a nihilistic pessimism. It is hope in a certain reality that is indicated by the resurrection of Christ. Our hope is in God, First Peter one twenty one, and that we are to be able to give a defense, a a solid, well-reasoned, constructed answer to people for the hope that is in us. Now, that's important because there's not a canned answer, according to just a comment there. It's not a canned answer because people ask us questions, and they come from all 
kinds of directions, we need to really internalize and understand what the Word of God teaches because when people ask questions of us and we get those opportunities to explain why we believe what we believe, it's never, trust me, in all my years, it's never from the direction of whatever it is we've studied. It's just going to be uh, based on the knowledge that we have in our own uh, in our own soul. Now, in Romans 5, 3 through 4, we see this stair step of virtues in 5, 3. We start with uh, rejoice, uh, uh, confidence, and uh, rejoice in hope. Uh, we also rejoice uh, because we know that adversity produces endurance. That's the first stair step. Adversity leads to endurance. Then the second stair step is endurance leads to character. And then the third stair step is character leads to confidence. And I charted it out uh, something like this. Last time I introduced you to a new term. It was a new concept to me as well. Uh, this was a logical uh, device uh, that originated with the Greeks called a sorites, sorites. And it was a form of logic that was developed in, the, in Greek philosophical thought that was related to a, a chain of uh, syllogisms or a chain of, of uh, individual items. One thing builds on another, that, the next thing builds on that, the next thing builds on that, where there is a, a, a series of, of items, each one building on uh, upon the previous, where you move from a, uh, maybe your minor premise ultimately to a, to a conclusion. It is thought historically that this uh, uh, this developed from uh, Eubulides of Miletus. Miletus was one of the uh, islands off of uh, off of Greece, and that um, that it, it's really kind of an interesting an interesting historical thing. Uh, the term sorites comes from now. I, I'm not going to make any comments. I'll just leave that up to your own imagination, your own thought. Uh, I will not go where all of you think I'm going to go. But the term sorites comes from the Greek word soros, soros, which means heap. I'm not going to go there. And it because it related to a fun little logical puzzle that was referred to as the heap. And so that's why it was called Saros, and the type of logic there was Sarites. And it, it was uh, on the idea that would you describe a single grain of wheat as a heap? No. Okay, would two grains of wheat be a heap? No. Would three grains of wheat be a heap? No. Well, you can, get, you can follow that on out until you get to, well, would 500 grains of wheat be a heap? Well, no. Well, would a thousand grains of wheat be a heap? Well, maybe. Well, wait a minute. If nine hundred and ninety-nine is not a heap, and you said if you go from zero to one, you don't have a heap. Well, why is just the addition of one little bitty piece of grain to nine hundred ninety-nine to make a thousand? Why would it? Why has it become a heap? And they did some fun little interesting things with that. One of the uh, other forms of this kind of logic related to what was referred to as the liar. Uh, the, and, and most of these are, there's a paradox embedded within these. Uh, so there, there's a certain uh, 
uh, aspect of a conundrum or a puzzle related to these kinds of uh, logical, uh, logical puzzles. The liar says that he is lying. So is he, what he says, true or false? The liar says that he is lying. How do you know? If he's lying, then he's telling the truth. But how can he be telling the truth if he's a liar? Then there was another example of this that was um, called the bald man. Uh, would you describe a man with one hair on his head as bald? What if he has two hairs? What if he has three? You know, you can see it's the same thing as the heap. When he, gets, he has a thousand hairs on his head, is he bald? Well, what about a thousand and one? Well, if, he has, if, he's bald, if he's no longer bald with a thousand and one, then... How did one hair make that much difference? So that was the idea, is, it, is moving from one step to another through a series of logical chains to reach a conclusion. So we see this uh, exemplified in a lot of different uh, t- types of uh, literature in developing certain, um, uh, certain statements. Uh, there are a number of these uh, sorites in the scripture. Uh, sometimes they're referred to as a... As a ladder. And so that's the term that I'm really using here is this virtue ladder that's that's developed in these passages, that there's a progression. But there's some things I think that we need to try to understand here, and that is that these progressions are not the same in every passage. Uh, we also looked at James 1, uh, 2 through 4, and we saw that in verses... Uh, Three and four, there's another Sorites, that testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance uh, produces, uh, uh, brings you to its end role or end game, the maturation or perfect as it's translated, that you may be perfect and mature, lacking nothing. So when we add that, we see that there's, there are different um, stages mentioned by James than Paul and Romans, but there's a certain similarity and so they're talking about the same thing. They're just using somewhat different vocabulary and emphasizing perhaps different intermediate stages in light of the theme of what they're teaching in their particular book. What I'm pointing out here is the writers of Scripture don't have a hard and fast six-stage process that they all refer to because spiritual growth is not a rigid mechanical thing. Now, there are, of course, mechanics involved. But let's say if you watch a ballerina on stage, uh, there are mechanics to ballet. There are mechanics to music. There's mechanics to art. There's mechanics to anything in life. But watching a ballerina dance on stage is anything but mechanical. Watching an artist draw is anything but mechanical. Watching a concert pianist is anything but mechanical, yet it's grounded on mechanics. Mechanics has to do with the fact that you have to understand certain basic techniques or procedures in order to eventually produce something that that has beauty, uh, aesthetic value, and uh, is very smooth. And I used to hate that when I was taking uh, uh, piano lessons or later in uh, junior high and high school playing trombone. It's going back and having to play technique exercises. It, how boring. 
but you learn basic skills, got certain things into muscle memory in your fingers or in your embouchure or whatever, and that would enable you later to play better and have a much more artistic result because you had mastered the mechanics. And so the writers of Scripture, under inspiration of Scripture, I mean, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are making it clear that there are certain stages in the growth process that we all pass through that are similar, but they don't present just a hard and fast stage one, stage two, stage three that's the same for every writer. So that brings us to the other side of spiritual growth, which is that it's dynamic. It's dynamic. It's not there, there are certain mechanics, there are certain basic elements that are there, but they don't develop in the same way in the same order in every person. Now, some things certainly follow in the same order because there's a logical relationship, but, but we grow at different rates at different stages because we're, we're different people. Uh, one person has a sin nature that trends towards asceticism. Another person has a sin nature that trends towards um, licentiousness. Another person has uh, a sin nature that has heavy on his... Uh, area of weakness that is producing a lot of overt or mental attitude sins, and another person has a sin nature that doesn't emphasize overt or mental attitude sins so much, but emphasizes a lot of personal uh, morality, which is generated by his own flesh and not by, not by God. So it's like what Isaiah refers to in Isaiah 64, 6. It's works of righteousness that in God's eyes are filthy rags. They don't measure up to his absolute standard. That doesn't mean they're not good, but it's a relative good. It's a good in, rel- uh, in relation to what other human beings produce, but in terms of God's absolute standard, it is a, a relative. It is not uh, the absolute that, that God has. And so we have these, these different stages. So in these lists that we find in passages such as Romans uh, 5, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, James uh, chapter 1, Galatians chapter 5 with the fruit of the Spirit. These are similar, but yet they're, they're different. They are a list of virtues, and they are often contrasted with vices. Now, I defined virtue a little bit last time. I wanted to go back and redefine it just a little bit, that virtue is a term that we get our English word from the Latin word virtus, but the Greek word that we find in the Scripture is arete, uh, which is what they have named the the camp up for the uh, teens up in uh, Colorado, and it refers to moral uh, excellence, moral excellence. That's its core meaning, but that's not quite how the New Testament uses it. Now, we're not going to find our understanding of the New Testament meaning of virtue by studying Plato or Sophocles or Aristotle because the background for the New Testament isn't 5th or 6th century Greek thought. It's the Old Testament. And so the concept of virtue in the New Testament isn't quite the same as you would find it in Greek philosophical thought. There is an overlap of meaning, but it's not going to be identical. Remember, the thinking of Peter as a Jewish fisherman had its foundation and its framework in the Hebrew Scriptures 
of the Old Testament. And it's interesting that in the Old Testament, the word arete is only used in the Septuagint uh, five or six times, in which case it refers to the it refers to the praise of God in relation to His absolute standard of righteousness and justice. God is praiseworthy because of who He is. It's not used of human beings. So therefore, we have a different concept going on because what they bring into the New Testament then is uh, foundationally a concept of virtue that is related to the character of God. Now, that is profound. Once you sit down and begin to work with that a little bit, that is an extremely important observation for us to make is why is it that this word is used somewhat rarely in the New Testament. It's used in uh, a couple of passages. Uh, Peter uses it a couple of times, and Paul uses it a couple of times, and, and that's about it. So what is the significance of this in terms of, of biblical uh, biblical thought? One of the places that Peter uses it is in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, referring to, once again, remember, both 1 Peter and 2 Peter are part of the Jewish epistles. 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Hebrews, James, Jude are all written to audiences of primarily Jewish believers in Jesus as Messiah. So they all are related to a, a Jewish audience. So the background of the, the common background of thinking, the shared uh, lexicon between the writer of this of these epistles and his audience is clearly going to be the the Old Testament. And in addressing these Jewish believers in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him. And the word that in the Greek there for translated praises is is uh, arete, so, again, it is talking about the excellence of God's character that is praiseworthy. Now, that's too many words to use to translate it, but that's, that's the idea, is that we can proclaim the uh, quality of God's character, his righteousness, his justice, his grace, his love, all of that which is manifest in his, the way he works with his uh, creatures, and I think that's an important way to understand uh, this concept of virtue in the New Testament. Classically, as I pointed out last time, uh, based on Plato, Plato came along and and c- categorized f- uh, four virtues, which became standard in um, in Greek thought. Uh, just a note on the background in Greek and uh, Greek thought. Originally, the word arete had the idea of a, of, of a person or an object or an animal that exemplified the perfection of that individual item, thing, animal, or person. So that a dog that was a, that approached the ideal dog would have the virtue of dogness a man who exhibited all of the positive qualities of manhood uh, would be called, that. that's the, more the Latin idea of virtus, which focused on, 
on the male who had those qualities of moral excellence related to a man. He was a man who exhibited courage and honor and self-control, whereas you would have maybe a, a, a flower would approach the excellence of flowerness, and that would have the virtue of being of a flower. So the term virtue, as you can see, is a word that would have uh, a lot of different ideas in there, a lot of different nuances to it, depending on the context and what it was, what it was related to. Well, that was the original meaning of virtue as, as a, an object or a person or an animal that exhibited the, the, the best of what that, was supposed, that individual thing was supposed to be. As Greek thought developed with, it, with Socrates, used the term to include a more moral or ethical sense. And in his thinking, the maturing or growing person who is gaining knowledge and insight into the world around him and into his purpose and meaning in life, which Socrates referred to as the good, uh, that person exhibited virtue by growing and maturing in, in that particular area as he gained insight into the good and lived in light of it. Plato took that and developed into the four classic virtues of wisdom, courage, uh, prudence, and justice. Uh, Aristotle, who was Plato's student, and of course Plato is an idealist, so he's operating from a purely rationalistic viewpoint. In other words, you're starting with ideas in the minds and then working your way out to understand reality. With Aristotle, you start with, the, uh, with, with sense perception, and then on the basis of what you learn through your senses, through empirical analysis, then you develop your understanding of all everything in, in, in the world. And for Aristotle, uh, he, Aristotle developed a, uh, started with this, with the idea of, of, uh, of virtue, and he also held to the idea that Socrates had introduced that it had a moral or ethical sense, but he developed that idea of, of ethics to include two different kinds of ethics, a practical virtue, which included uh, courage, temperance, and generosity, and what he called dia noetic, dia meaning through, nous is the Greek word for mind, so it's a more thoughtful, uh, mental attitude type of virtue, uh, ways in which the mind worked, reason was used, which included uh, inside wisdom, knowledge, and art. For him, art is not drawing. Art is producing something in life. So that's all developed within a Greek thought. Now, now, why is that important? I want you to think about that. Greeks have this tradition uh, of developing this whole idea of virtue. So there's a very strong moral and ethical nuance within Greek pagan, pagan Greek thought. I'm using the word pagan there in, a, in its uh, standard dictionary meaning that is non-Christian, non-Judeo-Christian, non-biblical thought. Why is it that this is important that they develop all of this and they write all kinds of things exploring the idea of virtue, and then you come to the Old Testament, which is God's revelation to man through Moses and Joshua and David and the, uh, uh, the prophets, and we don't find the word. Hmm. Now, that's an important thought to, to, to meditate upon uh, for a little bit. 
And I think that's because the Bible and God's thinking comes from a different starting point than Greek thought. Greek thought starts within man, but God starts with himself. And we read at the very beginning in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There's no defense of God because he, God is the one who created the entire human race, knows that every human being has embedded within him something called the Imago Dei in Latin, which is the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God said, let us make man in our image. And so God made man in his image, male and female, he made them. Now, that's a really important verse to think about in relation to this whole concept of, of virtue, because God created Adam and Eve in his image. That is, there's several things that we can say about that. Uh, first of all, it means that the, a human being was to reflect or resemble God in certain ways. And so a human being, male and female, both possess this whole quality of imageness and it was taking the character, the infinite character of God, and in infinite applies to every aspect of God's, God's character, his knowledge, his presence, his um, power, his righteousness, his justice, his ethical virtues, his, everything's infinite. And it's as if when God creates man as opposed to the angels, when he creates Adam, he compresses his character into a finite representation. Now, that's really hard for us to get our mental fingers around, but, but what that means is that every human being in that pre-fallen case, case of Adam was designed to be a finite representation of God so that you could look at man, at a human being being what God intended him to be. See, there's an echo of that original meaning of a rete there, that a thing is, approaches its intended design, it has virtue. So there's an echo of that thought there, and that's not because the Greeks got it right, it's that there's a residual element of certain, kind, certain truth that hangs around within human thought. So man's created to be this representation of God. So you look at man and you can see, see God, and, and man was created perfect. He's created righteous. Now, it's an untested righteousness, but it's still righteous. He's as righteous as God is because he's in the image of God. It's an untested, unqualified righteousness, and that's the purpose of the test in the Garden of Eden where there's a, the, the test related to the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens in the Garden of Eden? The, the, the serpent comes along, which is Satan, who has uh, taken on a form of a serpent in order to entice the woman. Very subtle, the Scripture says, that the serpent was mo the most subtle of all the creatures, indicating that he's tricky, he's cunning, and he has thought through an approach to the woman that is going to entrap her. It's like asking certain questions, like, have you... Uh, quit beating your wife yet. You have to be very careful. Uh, if you say yes, you're in trouble. If you say no, you're in trouble. You just have to avoid the whole, uh, the whole question, uh, uh, the whole question itself, and destroy the uh, presuppositions of the question. You can't just answer, uh, answer the question. So that's not what Eve does. 
she gets sucked right in and she begins to uh, question God when Satan says, has God really said? And, and the implications, is this really the right thing? Is this really good? Isn't God holding something back from you? And she begins to evaluate God. Well, what made her an evaluator or judge of God? Nothing. So rather than saying, well, God said we're not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and turning your back on the serpent and walking away, the, the, the wheels start turning and it's not long before she's looking and lusting after that fruit that somehow God's withholding something from us. And so she eats and then she leads uh, uh, Adam into, into that sin. And, but they're still, after the fall, we, we talk about them as being corrupt. Now, that's another word that's going to show up in this study. They're, they're corrupt. There's they're something that, inha- that happens within the nature of man as man, mankind as mankind, so that they're not what they were prior to that disobedience to God because now they've been corrupted by sin. It doesn't mean they're as bad as they can be. It doesn't mean they're always going to do bad, evil things. It doesn't mean that every human being is an Adolf Hitler or um, Ahmadinejad or Joseph Stalin or something like that, but that every human being has a, a predilection towards disobedience to God, and in doing that, he is capable of doing uh, horrible things, or he can do good things that may have horrible consequences. That his imageness, though, has not been changed. It's been maybe effaced or marred or distorted, but we're still in the image of God. But something's happened to that, so it's not what it was prior to the fall. And then we go through through the Old Testament, and we have all the things that happened in the Old Testament, the pre-flood civilization. We have the worldwide judgment on man where God says that the thoughts of the human heart are evil continuously. Not a good commentary on the basic predisposition of the human mind. And then after the flood, the first thing that happens is a rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel. God decides he's going to go to... uh, Uh, alternate plan B, which he always knew about from eternity past, and he selects Abraham. He's going to work through Abraham. We go all the way through the Old Testament, and we come to the New Testament, and the fulfillment of the Messianic promises in uh, Jesus, who is also the eternal second person of the Trinity, and Jesus is what? Jesus is eternal God. He is the incarnation of God. God is Recognize no human being can pay for sin because they're all, they can only pay for their, their own sin. And so God has to provide that, that payment. Now, the picture of that from the Old Testament is, of course, the sacrifice at, at Passover. Because there's a substitution there that God is going to bring a judgment of death in the tenth plague upon upon the Israelites, I mean, upon, uh, upon the Egyptians and everyone in Egypt. And so God gives a solution, though, to that uh, judgment to, the, uh, uh, to Moses, to the Israelites, that if they would take a lamb, a lamb that had, is chosen on the 10th of Nisan, evaluated until the 14th to make sure it is without spot or blemish. On the 14th, it's going to be sacrificed, and the blood is going to be applied to the door so that in the application of that blood to the doorpost, the 
that God is going to pass over the house and not bring the judgment of death on the firstborn in that household. So there's a substitution there. This is a gift from God. It's not something that is based on the inherent virtue, morality, ethics, or religiosity of the people inside the house. It's based on the fact that they hear what God's command is and they obey it because they believe it to be true. And so uh, that's, the, that's the foundation. And then in the New Testament, we read in the Gospel of John one of the most significant statements about who Jesus is. In John 1, 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, that's deity, and without him nothing was made that was made. So he is the creator, the active agent in creation, which is what Paul states in Colossians 1. And we're introduced to this concept of the Logos as a complete divine person distinct from but identical to the Father. Multiple personalities within the unity of the Godhead. Now, in in Judaism, a problem developed with that, but only after the Second Temple was destroyed. Before that, there were clear indications of a multiplicity of personality in the Godhead. And, uh, of course, the verse that you'll often hear uh, in in discussions with Jews is that they're strict monotheism because in Deuteronomy 6, 4, it says, Behold, uh, the uh, hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one. But the word there that is used in the Hebrew for one is echad, which is not a, 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 a singularity, but is a unity of multiplicity. And there's another form of the word one that is used to indicate a, a singular uh, unit, a, a singular item that's not a plural in terms of a unity. And the reason we know this is because a little statement that, that Moses makes at the end of the first chapter in Genesis. The end of the first chapter in Genesis, uh, Moses comments after God has brought, created Eve and brought her to the man, Moses comments and says, therefore it's not um, therefore, for this reason, a man should uh, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And it's the word echad. Same word that you have in, Gen- in Deuteronomy 6.4. But you have two persons who become a unity in marriage. So that the concept of God being a unity of persons is not foreign at all to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Scriptures. So when we get into John chapter 1, we read that the Word became flesh, and this is the Word that was with God and was God. John 1, 1, eternally was God, the imperfect tense there. Um, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Now, what did I say earlier? I said, watch this Word there in in Romans 5, the the glory of God. We know from Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's, that's a term of God that incorporates, encapsulates all of God's, uh, God's essence. So we beheld his glory. What's glory stand for? Glory stands for the character of, Je- of Jesus. We beheld his glory, but it's a, div- a term for divine glory. So the word became flesh, dwelt among us, so it became a human being, 
the infinite second person, the Trinity, became what? A finite, became a finite representation of God. <coughs> Jesus is, this is what Paul develops later as the second Adam. We beheld his glory now that he had the full essence of the Father. The glory is of the only begotten or the unique one of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then we skip down to verse 18 in John 1. And John says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has uh, declared him. And there's the, the Greek verb there is exegeo, where we get our English word exegesis, which means that he's the one who unpacks the meaning of something for us. So Jesus is the one who uh, discloses and reveals to us through a visible, finite representation of his character who God is. Now, why have I spent all this time on that? Because remember, there's something going on related to character transformation in these virtue ladder verses. So I want you to turn now to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, Romans 8 is the conclusion to Paul's development of the, the basics of the Christian spiritual life, which begins uh, to be introduced in Romans chapter 5, but the core chapters are Romans 6, uh, 7, and 8. And in Romans 8, um, uh, 28 and 29 we read, and we know, or because we know, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, there's that word image again. What did I say image meant? Genesis 1, image is a finite representation of who God is. A man was created in order to uh, serve God, to rule over God's creation, and to reflect the essence of God's character to man. Now, what is the Greek word that was used to refer to the excellence of God's character. Five, time, five or six times in the Old Testament, it was arete. It doesn't have anything to do with the Greek concept of arete, but it was used uh, by the translators in the Septuagint, in Psalms and in Proverbs, in Isaiah, rather, Isaiah 64. It was used in order to express the moral excellence, the praiseworthy character, the righteousness and justice of God, which is how it comes over into the New Testament passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 8 and 12, Isaiah 43, 21, and Isaiah 63, 7. Now, what's interesting is the Old Testament canon, the Old Testament period, closes all you know, Jewish authorities long before the time of Christ, recognized God has turned off the volume and he's not revealing himself anymore. The Old Testament canon is shut down and closed and they finalize it. And there's nothing new added to it. But that, that doesn't mean the Jews quit writing because there's other books that are written about what is going on in the Jewish community. And some of these books have become part of what is called the Apocrypha. Apocrypha. It's called the Apocrypha because these are uh, books that were, were hidden and were not part of the canon, and uh, they were included uh, 
against his desire by Jerome, who lived in Bethlehem in the 300s and translated the uh, Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament into Latin, and that Latin translation became known as the Vulgate. And the the, uh, the Pope wanted him to include uh, to include uh, the Apocrypha. So in the translation, which I mean, in the introduction, which no one I'm not going to embarrass everybody and say how many of y'all read the introduction to your Bible. You ought to go home and read that. You might learn something very interesting. Um, but there was an introduction to the Vulgate, and it said these books aren't the Bible. <laughs> Jerome didn't believed that they were inspired. No Jewish authority had ever accepted them as part of the Old Testament canon. And they, but he says they're good because they teach us something about what happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so they are worthy of our study, but they're not the Word of God. Well, nobody ever read that, so what happens in the history of the early church and the Roman Catholic Church is people thought because it was within the front cover and back cover of the Bible, it was just like all the other books, and that led to its eventual inclusion in the Roman Catholic Bible. But it is in those books which were written during the time of the Hellenistic Empire. This is the term used to refer to the Greek Empire after Alexander died, and it split up among four of his generals. And in terms of the Middle East, you have the uh, you have the um, uh, Ptolemies down in Egypt, and you have the Seleucids who control b- roughly Syria and what we now know as Turkey, and they're constantly fighting with each other and what's in between Syria and Egypt, Israel. And so the, the Jews that have returned from the Babylonian exile, the Babylonian captivity, are constantly being used as pawns between the Egyptians uh, and, and the Syrians. And so the language that they're beginning to use all of the time is, uh, along with Hebrew and Aramaic, is, is Greek. And so Greek thought begins to influence them, and Hellenism begins to dominate the, uh, the culture of the Jews. And it's exacerbated by the fact that once the Seleucids rise to power, and you have uh, Antiochus the Great, which is, who is Anti- also Antiochus III, and then his son Antiochus IV uh, Epiphanes, who's the real evil uh, uh, one in the Old Testament who's used as a um, type of the ant- future Antichrist, that they try to stop Jewish worship. They burn all, especially Antiochus Epiphanes, he burns all of the copies of Scripture. If anyone is caught circumcising or having circumcised an infant, the infant dies and the parents die. Uh, If anybody is caught observing the Sabbath, they're going to die. I mean, it is a complete anti-Semitic suppression of of anything that is uniquely Jewish. So this is why this is the same period of time when the Maccabees, first, second, third, fourth Maccabees are written, and in these books you have the use of arete virtue. First time it really shows up in what we would call extra biblical literature, Jewish literature, with a Greek meaning. When it's translated into in the Old Testament, the, the Septuagint, it's not used with that meaning. It refers to the character of God. So we, I'm saying all of that because when we get to Romans 8, 29, we're told that, that the destiny that God has set for every church-age believer 
is to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, I want you to get this. Man is created, man and woman is created in the perfect image of God to be a perfect, finite representation of God in terms of his character and his abilities and to rule over his creation. Adam sins, disobeys God, the entire human race is plunged into sin, and that image is not erased, but it is effaced, it is marred, it is distorted, and it has to be repaired. And it can't be fixed by man. It can only be fixed by God. How does God do it? He sends a Savior who pays the penalty for sin, a Savior who what? Who is the exegesis or the explanation of the character of God, who in his life displays the character of God. John said we beheld his glory, the glories of the only unique Son of God. And then... When the Son is crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascends to heaven, the goal that God has for every believer is to what? To conform them in their spiritual growth to that image. And what's that? the excellence of that image called? Well, it's used in, in the Psalms. It's a rete. So when we think of a rete and virtue in the New Testament... Get rid of the Roman concepts, get rid of the Greek concepts, and deal with the way it is used biblically in terms of manifesting within our character the character of Christ. That's what this is all about, so that we manifest the, pers- the, 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 the character of Christ through us, and that can only happen uh, through a change that occurs through God the Holy Spirit. So we... Uh, we are we proclaim the praises of the virtue of him, first Peter two nine, through spiritual growth. Now this is what happens when we get to our passage we looked at last time. Second Peter one three, I spent uh, time on that, never got to the virtue ladder last time, not going to get there tonight either. That here we learn that because as I pointed out last time in the exegesis of one three, that that opening phrase should be understood as as a causal statement, because his divine power, what's the focal point of that phrase, his divine power? It's the character of God as seen through the, the lens of, his, of, of a power word. Often that happens in, in languages. We use one character of something, one characteristics of something, to stand for the entirety of the thing that we're talking about, because that's the the one aspect or character of the thing that we're really emphasizing, but not to the exclusion of everything else. So it isn't that God's power gave this to us to the exclusion of his righteousness, his justice, his love, uh, his, his virtue, as we'll see. His p- divine power, that is, all that God is, and through his divine ability, he gave to us all things that pertain or that relate to uh, life and to godliness. And I pointed out last time as we went through this that they, they, these really relate to two, uh, two different things. They relate to uh, life relates to physical life, uh, which only is fully experienced by us once we are regenerate. Before that, we're the walking dead. We're like zombies in a, a Twilight movie or something. We are the walking dead. 
Uh, we think we're alive, but Jesus came to give us life. We, we died when Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We became spir- spiritually dead. So the life there has to do with the, the, that once again we can experience the fullness of life that God has for us, and he's going to give us all of the necessities of life that we uh, require in order to fulfill his purpose for us. And then the second word is the word Eusebeia, uh, uh, which is I pointed out last time, is related to not just God-likeness, but it is related to showing reverence and loyalty to those to whom it is due. Now, this is a concept that I've really been working through in the last two or three weeks as I've been trying to get my, not only my mental fingers around this, this fuller understanding of this word, Eusebeia, but also how that relates to the concepts of faith and love. And one of the things that really hit me uh, as I'm reading through this, and uh, I think it's always interesting how God the Holy Spirit takes you through. I can be reading in five or six different subjects, and there are times when everything clicks together, and they're not even related. And that's just the, the dynamics, I think, of God's revelation and the Holy Spirit in our life. But this word, uh, Eusebeia, uh, which is similar to the Greek word uh, piety, which is why it's often translated piety, uh, pietas in Latin, focused on this idea of showing reverence and loyalty. And then I'm reading in a completely different book dealing with archaeology, trying to prep for going to Israel this summer, and reading a statement, just a, it was like a throwaway line in a paragraph that in ancient covenants, when a king conquered another country, that he would impose a surrender document, we would say today, a, a new covenant or contract describing the relationship between this, this defeated power and, the, and his power as that you are now supposed to love me. Well, in a conquered nation, you don't have warm feelings about your conqueror. So that idea of love is it's expressed and used in those kind of covenant documents, which is just like Deuteronomy. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That this idea of love wasn't talking about, in a covenant context, isn't talking about having warm feelings about God or warm feelings about uh, the person who initiated the, the contract, but it's loyalty. So here we have the idea that Eusebia has to do with with this new life that we have in relationship with God and showing loyalty to him so that we can fulfill what God intended us to be. Now see how that, once again, it comes over and begins to impinge on that original meaning of a retes being all that we're intended to be. And so we have that word love, and what we're going to see in the first stair step in, uh, in this uh, uh, virtue ladder for this very reason, giving all diligence, and to your faith, virtue. See, you're supposed to add to your faith, virtue. So the first step in this virtue ladder is going to be faith. And this is the Greek word pestis. And I remember years and years ago when I was uh, first really beginning to get a handle on uh, a lot of the issues in the... Uh, in the Lordship debate, reading John MacArthur's first edition of his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, where he argues his whole Lordship theory. 
he quoted, now this got changed in subsequent editions because a number of people pointed this out. I wasn't the only one in a book review to point this out, that pistis normally has the meaning of the act of belief. It is a noun that describes the act of believing something. But in, in virtue ladders, in, in, in contexts where there is a series of virtues, the word pistis does mean faithful. That's where MacArthur got the idea when he said that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, he wanted to translate it faithfulness. But see, Ephesians 2.89 isn't talking about a series of virtues. It's talking about the and describing the act of believing. So the noun pistis can have has about three different meanings according to uh, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, Gingrich. And the meaning related to its use as a noun when it's standing alone is it describes the act of believing, but it's when it's related to a series of virtues, it has the idea of being faithful. And so we have, this is talking about, this is talking about a person after salvation. It's talking about their Christian growth. It is talking about the fact that as we grow, and we'll talk more, I'll develop this more next time in terms of the faith rest drill, because a faith rest drill is an act of believing God, but it is an act of learning how to be faithful in doing that so that we don't just do it occasionally, but we learn to make this a habit pattern uh, in, our, in our life. So it's going to be faith is used in that sense here in, um, in 2 Peter chapter 1. So we have embedded within these ideas of eusebeia and love, which is the final step in the stair step down in uh, verse 7 to godliness. There we have eusebeia again, brotherly kindness, Philadelphia, and to brotherly kindness, love. Love has to do with loyalty, not emotion. Uh, godliness has to do with the manifesting the character of God in terms of faithful loyalty to him and manifesting the kind of character that he created man to manifest his character. And that can only be produced by God the Holy Spirit, which is why we find a parallel between this passage and the fruit of the Spirit passage in Galatians 5 uh, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, this is another one of those uh, 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 Sorites passages. But they're not given in a, in a logical order here. They are, if you understand the context, because the command that Paul gave in Galatians 5, uh, 13 and 14 is to love one another uh, and so to love one another, he, that's why it's the first fruit mentioned is because that's what he's talking about is how do you do that? It's be, by walking by the Spirit, and the fruit of that is first of all love, and then he ties in these other connections. We'll get to that uh, some more next time. So we see this progression. Self-control is the same word in Galatians 5.23 that we have in the um, list of, of First Peter uh, chapter, I mean Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, there in verse 6, to knowledge, self-control. Now, all of these need to be broken down a little bit more so we understand the, the internal dynamics and relationships here. But I, I want you to come out of this understanding a couple of things. First of all, 
that that while there are certain connections that are similar in spiritual growth, it's a dynamic, not a static process. So it's not the same for everybody. There are certain things that do that are logically and temporally based on other things. For example, we have to face a trial, have a trial, uh, a test, and then there's enduring the test, and that develops perseverance. So that certain things have to go in a certain order. But other things do not necessarily go in the order. They are the virtues or the uh, that that moral excellence or what I'm going to call the spiritual excellence or the mirror or reflection of the of the character of God that's developed uh, in in our life because that's what these are. We can't develop this on our own. It has to be done uh, by walking by uh, by the Holy Spirit, and that's why Second Peter is going to end. Uh, Peter ends in verse 8 by saying, For these things are yours and abound, they're abundant. You will be neither barren nor unfruitful. Well, how do you become fruitful? By walking by the Spirit who produces the fruit of the Spirit. So these passages all intersect, and it's just critical for understanding uh, aspects of, of the Christian life. But the bottom line is that it's not just a matter of sitting, folding your hands, learning the Word, and it's going to automatically happen. Because what's embedded in all of this is our mandates, that we have to do certain things and not do certain things under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in response to what the Word of God says. So when it's, for the simple one that none of you will have a problem with, when it says, study to show yourself approved under God, oh yeah, great, I get, need to be filled with the Spirit and I need to study. That's a command, I need to study. Well, that's not any different from any of the other commands that talk about doing certain things are not doing certain things, having certain qualities in your life and not having certain qualities in your life, it is still volitional. The Holy Spirit is not going to produce the, the fruit apart from your volitional engagement in doing what the Word of God says to do when you, you are in that situation. So we'll come back and look at that, uh, those dynamics more fully next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things, to come to understand our spiritual life uh, in a little bit different way, but it's still the same way that we've always understood it, just, just refining it, clarifying it, understanding it in terms of how different writers of Scripture have expressed it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We pray that we might not lose heart, that we might continue to endure and be faithful in our study of your Word, uh, because we know that what we go through is, is under your supervision and your guiding and directing us towards your plan, your planned end game, so that we, are, we recover the ability to reflect your, your image, your virtue, your character in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.